The passage we read just a few minutes ago says something that some people might find quite jarring. Indeed, some people might find it surprising. In verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Okay, so far so good. We can, we can say amen to that. Many, most Christians, I hope, would not have any issue. I, hope, I would hope that no one would have any issue with this verse. But um, in action, I think there can be some issue because we read, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And yet somehow, somewhere along the way, uh, it became a very real problem among Christians to have vicious levels of Jew hatred. And the history is undeniable. Um, you can look from the early centuries of the church uh, following Jesus's resurrection and ascension, and you can see animosity specifically directed toward the Jewish people by people who professed faith in Christ. Even people that we quote, even people that we uphold to some large degree have um, had this attitude. Uh, one man, John Chrysostom, sometimes spoken of as golden-tongued, um, a lot of his vocabulary we can look at and say it goes beyond the theologically accurate and uh, diverts into the undeniably hateful. And that's problematic. Indeed, I submit that um, there has been consistently, while a thread of God's people who have uh, recognized and prayed for and valued the Jewish people, there's also been a thread of professors of faith in Christ who have uh, not done so. Uh, even you can think of individuals like Martin Luther, who uh, many, especially in the Jewish community, will know of his treatise. They don't know of him as a reformer. They know of him as an inspiration, not the only inspiration, but an inspiration um, for the Third Reich and for Hitler. His book on the Jews and their lies, um, a really vile treatise, if you are able, it's freely downloadable on um, on, on the internet, uh, calls for synagogues to be destroyed, for Jews to be kicked out, if necessary, of Germany, and a host of things that we who especially are, are Baptist and value freedom of religion uh, would look at and say, that's actually abhorrent, and that falls out of line with what Jesus said about his kingdom not being of this world. And so with this has come a question, and there's been divergence. There have been all sorts of extremes of attitude toward the very concept of the Jews and the very concept of Israel. And the two, I will submit to you biblically, are, are really inseparable, but we'll get to that. Um, should Israel matter to Christians? This is a question that we need to ask. But we can't really answer the question unless we actually define what we're talking about. Because uh, the definition of Israel is not as straightforward as one might immediately assume. We need to look at this biblically. And I submit to you that Romans, the letter of Paul to the Romans, deals in many ways with this question. I, I remember reading through Romans one of those occasions where I was um, reading through the passage as a whole. I really encourage us to do that with letters. It's great to read letters as they were originally meant to be read. 
most of us, I hope, when we get something in the post, will not just read the first few sentences and then put it away and then pick it up the next day or a few days later and then read on. And then you're going to miss some of the message, aren't you? A letter has always been meant to be read in its totality. Now, of course, in preaching and uh, exegesis, we unpack these things and that's important. And we present and we exposit the truths of God's word that are found in the scriptures in that way. But I still think it's really wholesome to take some time, if ever you're going through a letter in the New Testament, to take the entirety of it and read it through in one setting. At the Angel Church, we have often done, um, not on some of the um, very, very large letters um, in every case, we've, um, but, but in most cases, we have tried to, where even there is a slightly longer letter, the entirety of our Sunday service, uh, apart from the singing and praying, has been reading. And we read together the letter. I think probably is what would have happened when the letter would have first been received. And on one occasion, really the first time when I did this myself, personally, for the letter of Paul to the Romans, I saw the underlying thread a lot clearer. I saw the context so much clearer. And I realized that there are some bookends of this letter that we're going to come to and a, a main substance that, that Paul is getting at. In, in, with all of the doctrine and with all of the points in regards to salvation, there is a purpose that Paul is writing. He's not writing something just to be a statement of faith. He is writing dealing with a very practical situation that the church at Rome and indeed other churches in the uh, world at that time were battling with. But first of all, um, defining Israel, we need to consider Israel the promise. In Genesis 12, I will make of you a great nation, God tells Abraham, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so uh, he goes on and he talks about this is, uh, this is an eternal, this is an everlasting covenant that he is making with, at this point, his name is Abram. Later, he's renamed Abraham. Um, he's going to be the father of a great multitude and he's going to bless with land, with descendants, with uh, the ability to bless indeed the whole world. So there's Israel the promise. Moving swiftly on, Genesis 32, 28. There's Israel the person. Uh, we see Jacob is born. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. So Abraham did have a son. Abraham did have a son with Sarah, his wife, and his name was Isaac. And then Isaac would have a son whose name was Jacob. And you can read the story of Jacob and Esau, and, and you can come away thinking, wow, if, if I was in uh, the position of choosing someone, I probably would have chosen Esau. J Jacob comes across as a singularly unlikable fellow, I find, at times. He, 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 is, uh, he cheats his blind father. How low can you get? He, um, he, he uses his mother to cheat his blind father. That's even worse. It, it, it gets worse. He, um, it, there's so many things without unpacking and dishing all of the dirt on him that yeah, you're left thinking, what, what did God see? And that's not the gospel, is it? God doesn't look at our merit. 
It's on the basis of his mercy that we're saved. And uh, blessed be his name because none of us would be here otherwise, right? But Israel the person, uh, Jacob finds himself wrestling with God. In Genesis 32, 28, what we have to hold our hands up and say is an undeniably bizarre story. We see um, that Jacob is wrestling, finds himself wrestling with God there in Genesis 32. And it, it, this goes on all night. And we read that God says to him, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Genesis 32, 28. So his name is Israel. Then there's Israel, the people. Now, this is a concept that develops from um, that passage initially that we looked at, Genesis 12, 1 and 3. But it's unpacked more in Genesis 15, where God promises uh, that Abraham can look into the stars of the night sky and realize that his descendants will be numbered like that. He can't count the stars in the night sky, but if he could, well, that would be the number of his descendants. A powerful promise to a man who is as good as dead. That's what Paul says in the letter, one of the letters we referenced earlier this morning. Uh, a powerful promise to a man who is as good as dead, whose wife is barren. That he can look up and that will be his people. Those will be his descendants. And so you can read in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, and you can see there um, very clearly the development of the people, Israel, and this everlasting covenant that's given to them. And there's um, the sign of circumcision, which is given uh, that's there as well in um, Genesis 17. And that shows us more of Israel, the people. But then there's undeniably Israel, the place. Now, its boundaries were a bit larger than they are in regard to the present geographical location that is Israel. But Israel, the place, was promised by God. I'm going to show you a land that I will give to you and your descendants forever. That was God's message to Abraham. Uh, but then, after a period of 400 years, which God speaks of to Abraham there in Genesis 15, a period of servitude in Egypt, the people are released. Well, not, not really released. They're, they're delivered from uh, this slavery. And they cross the Red Sea. And they arrive uh, just on the cusp of the Promised Land in fact, they uh, send in 12 spies. Does anyone remember? They came back and they were full of faith, right? They said, "Let yes, God has given us this land. No? What happened? There were only two who were like that. Ten said, yes, it's a beautiful place, but there's some very scary people who live here. And uh, we were like grasshoppers to them. Uh, they will crush us. Why did God... Do this to us. Why have you brought us into this place to die? We are about to be completely eradicated. What is going on? They had total lack of faith. What were the names of the two? Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb were the only ones from that generation who would enter the promised land because they had faith. Everyone else died in the wilderness. 
That was the consequence of their rebellion. But they went in and they, they took the promised land, or at least a, a large part of it. You see, unfortunately, there's throughout the scriptures this very real and frustrating problem, especially when we read it and we, we can read through lens of self-righteousness, can we not? We look at it and say, what are they doing there? What is everyone, what, what's that about? When God gave this to them. God said, do this. Why, why, why are they not? And we... We, we really should be looking at ourselves in the mirror there on, on many occasions. But um, we, we, we look at this and we say, well, they, they just kind of grew lazy. They didn't complete what God had called them to do. And then they just kind of assimilated and began to be influenced by these other nations that were there. To their detriment, because by the time of... The judges, we see that there are repeat periods of exile. We often think of the exile to Assyria, which the northern kingdom of Israel never came back from. There was a split in the kingdom. More on that in a minute. But they were assimilated into the Assyrian Empire and then the offspring of intermarriage or the Samaritans never came back. Judah, the southern kingdom, which would have included the city of Jerusalem, that they went into exile in Babylon. But we often forget that there are multiple exiles that Judges records. Sometimes decades long periods of exile because the people sinned against God and they did not follow his word. And they fell into idolatry. They did not look to him. They did not set their heart to him. But continually, God frees them. And brings them back. Now, the place, Israel, is established and it is given, yes, as a promise because God had promised it to Abraham. And then it was promised to uh, that generation that came out of Egypt. Moses was given the promise even prior to Moses' death at the end of Deuteronomy and summing up just as the people are going to, um, about they're about to enter this promised land. There's... In uh, the end, well, really throughout Deuteronomy 29, a period of covenant renewal. And then in Deuteronomy 30, having recognized that the people would rebel and that they would fall away from God's grace. He says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing, there will be periods of blessing and the curse. There will be massive periods of curse as well, which I have set before you. And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord God has driven you. All the nations has driven them all across the place and return to the Lord your God, you and your children and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcast or in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. The Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So we, we see very clearly there, they're going to go into a period of exile. They're going to go into a period of diaspora, but he's going to bring them back. There's departure and restoration. And then, then there's the reality of Israel in the present. 
And there's uh, a mix of people across the land of Israel. Um, there are ethnic Jews scattered um, around the world who are of Israel. They are of ethnic Israel. They belong to this biblical definition that we've looked at of Israel around the world. They're scattered, um, but there was always a body that continued to inhabit the present day land until its, not, its modern reformation in 1948, following um, a progression of plans. It goes a bit further than that, but 1917. So the, the question is, when we look at all of this, we, we, can, we can look at these definitions and we can have the conversation about Israel and we can see very clearly and undeniably that God has made certain promises to Abraham and his descendants. He has made certain promises to the Jewish people. Are those relevant to today? In Romans, we read a passage a moment ago where post-resurrection and ascension, I remind the Apostle Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I submit to you that the letter of Paul to Romans is all about God's drawing together people of Jew and Gentile background to Christ in the new covenant. It is in some way you can make a case for it and say that it is all about Israel and God's plan. Hold tight. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, Jewish, the Jewish Messiah, right? Um, Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, all Jews, Um, in the Holy Scriptures. Paul is referencing the Hebrew Jewish Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, David remaining Israel's hero. He still to this day is um, you, you can go to the old city of David, which is in Jerusalem. It's one of the greatest archaeological digs um, that has to be one of the greatest in the world, really. The amount of ancient material that they've managed to excavate and find in that spot. You can look it up and um, find yourself going down the rabbit hole that we don't have time to tonight. But it is fascinating. Paul references there. David and links and shows how Jesus the Messiah, as promised, comes from the line of David, descended from David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. It's for another time, but the Trinity is there in the Old Testament. It's there in the Old Testament. We see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament, just as we do in the New Testament. Um, there is um, some really helpful resource if you want more on that, um, that Jews for Jesus has um, as well on the Trinity in the Old Testament from a Jewish perspective. But um, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So he starts, notice he starts with all of those elements that are linked to our definition of Israel, um, of the ethnic people in Abraham. And he, he, he points to that fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham that not only would he and his descendants be blessed, but he and his descendants would be a blessing to all the nations. 
and would be the catalyst through which all the nations would be blessed, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's at the beginning of his letter. Now at the end of his letter, Romans 16, 25 through 27, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, <coughs> according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. It's there in the Old Testament. He's referring to the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament. But has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. Now in Jesus, we actually can understand what the prophets were getting at. According to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Those are the bookends of Revelation. I was taught when writing an essay, when writing a book, when writing anything really, you need an introduction and you need a conclusion. In the introduction, you lay out the thesis and in the conclusion, you lay out the thesis again. You conclude in very much the same way as you begin. You make your point at the beginning, encapsulating what you're going to be looking at and why and the pattern that you're going to be following, and then you conclude by reiterating the same. Paul does very, very much that in this letter to the church at Rome. Now, there are two what I call pseudo-Christian myths about Jews that we need to consider. First of all, the Jew has no advantage when it comes to the gospel. The Jew has no advantage when it comes to the gospel. The second pseudo-Christian myth about Jews. Jews are better off. Because they are Jews. There are two things. The Jew has no advantage when it comes to the gospel. And the second, Jews are better off because they are Jews. There are some people who um, will, will claim that no, the, the, the Jews, especially the Jews today, for some reason, we, because of time, I think, I think it's time. I think it's distance and um, all of the history of interaction for centuries that it's just become somewhat muddled in some way um, people act like okay the, the, the Jews they're just over here no advantage now just the church right that's all that matters Israel now that's the church nothing to do with the Jews nothing no which is kind of strange because we have an old and new testament written entirely for the most part by Jews um, and we have reiteration throughout here that the gospel is first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. But then on the other side, I've encountered this. I've encountered this on visits to, um, to, to Israel, actually. Individuals who think that Jews can be saved without faith in Christ. People who profess Christ. People who profess that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but they believe that it is possible to be saved without believing in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, as long as you're Jewish. So if you're Jewish, you have a special deal, special one-way track worked out for you with God. And even though it's, it's not really ideal that you've denied Jesus, it's okay. And there are some groups that masquerade as Christians who uh, they, they refuse to engage and evangelism and outreach among Jews because 
they believe, well, they have a special advantage. The first myth denies any ongoing significance or importance of the Jews and of Israel. And again, the Jews have always historically been attached with this idea of Israel. Israel, ethnic Israel, national Israel, and Judaism have been inseparable in the Jewish mind. So I'm using them interchangeably here. Um, myth number one denies there's any ongoing significance or importance of the Jews in Israel in God's plan. The second myth emphasizes the importance of the Jews and Israel to the point of denying Scripture regarding salvation. Jesus tells, Jesus the Jewish Messiah tells a group of Jews, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He tells a group of Pharisees um, who some of them actually in the previous passage, it says, had had believed in him. He says, "Uh, you don't know me. Because you are of your father, the devil. So, so Jesus says to this group that, that their beliefs and their behaviors are out of sync with what it truly is to be God's people. So he's making, uh, he, he, he's making a, a differentiation here between those who profess to be a part of God's people and those who actually are God's people. He says, you say you're children of Abraham. They did. They said, we're children of Abraham. He said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do this. You would say this. You would be like this. But you're not really Abraham's children. You may be of his blood, but being his children goes deeper. Now, Romans. God's gospel is for the Jews however one defines them. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. As Christians, we must see that, affirm that, recognize that, and implement that. I understand that there was going to be a, a brother from uh, CWI, Christian Witness to Israel, um, but he has been held up because of uh, his, own, um, his own involvement at the moment in the ongoing crisis in the, in the Middle East. Um, CWI, interestingly, was founded by a man named Ridley Hyam Herschel, who was one time the pastor of a church that met in the building uh, uh, for the Angel Church, which I pastor now is. It it was founded while he was pastor of a congregation that was in that that building. It's been in existence now for uh, 180 to 200, soon be 200 years. This witness is particularly aimed at communicating the gospel of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, in a way that the Jews will understand in a very clear and a very compatible way, taking the law, the writings, and the prophets as we see Jesus and his followers do throughout the New Testament. God's gospel is for the Jews, however one defines them. God's judgment will affect Jews as well as non-Jews because ethnicity does not save. 
The amount of people I encounter who think that they are okay with God because of their ethnicity is staggering. I remember one young man in the earlier days of planting the church in Angel who insisted that every Ghanaian was Christian. And he had more mature Ghanaians in the, the congregation saying, stop your nonsense. That's not true. And he said, no, no. He said, Nigeria, he had to bring Nigeria into it. Um, he, 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 said, he said, in Nigeria, they have Muslims. In Ghana, we're all Christian. And, 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 and you know, the, I've seen kind of the geopolitical interactions kind of manifest a little bit. And that there can be um, some... There was some heated debate and discussion and people were trying to get through. No, not 100% of people in Ghana are Christian. Are, are you mad? He said, no, we're all Christian. Nothing would, nothing would dissuade him. I've come across in this country. I remember uh, before my family moved, we were um, God's providence brought us unexpectedly to this place near Oxford called Woodstock. And Woodstock, uh, there was this uh, inn that we stayed in for one, one night. Uh, it was, again, completely unplanned. And we were set there around this fire, and there were a few people. It was a very, very cold, very cold evening. And um, just got to talking to some people who would, lived local, and they went there. And I remember my father was, was asking the question, they were asking about who we were and why we were there, how we found ourselves in this random place. And maybe it was Blenheim Palace where Winston Churchill spent a lot of time um, growing up. That was nearby. And, um, we, we actually didn't know that at the time until they introduced it. Uh, and that they were asked when they said, oh, it's interesting, they found out my dad was a pastor and we were heavily involved in um, church planting and something. I said, oh, that's very, that's interesting. My dad said, so are, are you Christians? You know, there's opportunities. We have opportunities to tell the gospel and to just bring in Jesus into conversations. Um, they say that. We could have said, yeah, yeah uh, you know, just left it there. But what do you think of that? Are you Christians? Oh, of course we're Christians. We're English. <laughs> really bizarre response. And I dare say, I, I have a good many English friends who would hate that response because they are already atheists. Or, or, or they uh, are into New Age or all, you know, all sorts of other things. But in their mentality, of course they're English. Uh, of course they're Christian. They're English. Ethnicity doesn't save. It doesn't matter who you are. God's judgment affects Jews as well as non-Jews. Romans 2, verse 9 through 11. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. It's important that we recognize that. I do pray that you'll go... And spend some time this week, guys, it'll take 45 minutes probably, read through Romans in one setting. There's so many passages that we're not going to be able to look at, but you'll see the big picture, I trust, as you read. Third, God's praise is for inward, spirit-filled Jews. That's how Paul speaks in Romans 2, 28 through 29. He says, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. 
And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, Paul is a Jewish follower of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. John, the apostle, would write to various churches under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the words of of Jesus, really, through John, he would pin them, but it was always the Lord writing to the angel of the church in these seven places. And um, over the centuries, there have been many people, and still to this day, I encounter it time to time, people who like to highlight the synagogue of Satan. They really like to maximize the use of that, and they, they hone in on those who are Jews, Forgetting that John himself was Jewish. He simply was following Jesus the Messiah. Forgetting that there are many, many. uh, In fact, I believe some recent estimates, um, over one million, maybe up to two million now, Jewish followers of Jesus. My wife happens to be one of those. Jews who believe in Jesus as the Messiah, right? As we desire, because the gospel is for the Jew first and then to the Greek. John is not, and Jesus is not there in in Revelation, having a crack, just completely obliterating the Jewish people. He is saying, there are some who say they are Jews, But they are not. Why? Because even though they have the external form of Judaism, and yes, ethnically, even though they are part of that blood family of Abraham, and though um, there are, as we'll see, privileges associated with that, they don't have what it takes to be right with God because they don't know and haven't come into God's grace. They're still under the law. They still are living as if they're saved by the law. They haven't come to Jesus, their Messiah. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament. This is why Jesus, when he's interacting with Nicodemus about new birth, Nicodemus is like, how can a man be born again? He says, you're the teacher of Israel. You're on the Sanhedrin. You should know these things. What are you talking about? The prophets spoke of new hearts. The prophets spoke of new life and transformation. They spoke of being circumcised in the heart. Throughout the prophets, we see even calls, close the doors to the temple. Just obey the Lord. You're not not obeying the Lord by offering sacrifice to Him whilst continuing in sin every other day whilst continuing in injustice and unrighteousness. The true Jew, Paul says, is his praise is not from man, but from God. Now, moving on, Romans 3 and then Romans 9. God has given the Jews certain advantages. God has given the Jews certain advantages. Then what advantage has the Jew, Paul asks in Romans 3 verse 1, or what is the value of circumcision? Now, I dare say that there are some who, if they were just asked that, would say absolutely none. 
and would say it with defiance and determination and confidence. Would say it with chest. He has none. Much in every way, Paul says, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. In Romans 9, 4 through 5, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. God has given the Jews certain advantages. And this is why every time when I've gone to Jerusalem and I've been there and I've gone to the Western Wall, I've walked around and I've seen the practices and the devotion of the individuals there, I cannot help but grieve that there are people who are looking for the coming of Messiah and He's already come. There are so many advantages. But tragically, over the years, many of the rabbis have deliberately sought to suppress and hide certain passages. The Talmud is an example of that. There's more in synagogues from the Talmud and the Mishnah and the various Midrash and traditions around. It's just the, the, the terminology there. It, it, it's basically... What Jesus was saying, you're heaping up rules of men. You're not looking at what God has to say. Psalm 22 was the psalm that saw my late father-in-law come to see Jesus as his Messiah. He was on a kibbutz in Israel and he gave an ultimatum in regard to who he wanted his roommate to be, and they gave him someone who was a habitual snorer, and he couldn't sleep, and so he said, I need to be moved. Please move me to another room, and he got something worse, a Christian. And and he really thought that. He thought, I've gone from the... I I wish I could go back to the guy who was snoring uh, to be his roommate. Um, This guy is actually quoting Scripture and reading Scripture aloud. Who does that? So he's, he, hear, he told him, he said, um, I'll let you read Scripture in my presence aloud, but please respect me enough to not read the New Testament. Don't, don't read the New Testament when I'm here. So one day the man's reading aloud. I told you not to read any of that Jesus stuff. Okay. I told you not to read anything from the New Testament. He said, well, this is from Psalm 22. Why do you assume it's about Jesus? No, no, you were reading from the New Testament. No, it's Old Testament. It's it's Psalm 22. But that was talking about Jesus. Jesus said those words. He said, well, here, you can look. And it was through that that he began to ask the questions. And it was through that that he began to see Jesus is there in the Old Testament. He went to the rabbis about that and Isaiah 53 and many other passages. And they said, don't worry about it. It's okay. Don't. They didn't have an explanation. 
I asked a rabbi I know um, about these passages, and he said, just go on YouTube. I was giving him the opportunity to convert me. <laughs> I mean, I, he, he, he was viewing Rachel, my wife, as a lapsed Jew, um, one of these wackos who's believing in Jesus, and, you know, this guy here, what is he? Who is he to her? Um, he was trying to convince me to um, undergo some ritual. Uh, but it's bizarre. The truth speaks and it cuts. God has given the Jews certain advantages. And we must pray that they would see those advantages. God's gifts to the Jews do not make them better off before him outside Jesus. This is the balancing of it. Many people err and they say, God has given the Jews certain advantages and we stop there or we want to stop there. But in Romans 3, 9 through 10, Paul asks, what then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. In verse 27, what becomes of our boasting, it is excluded. God's gifts to the Jews do not make them better off before Him outside Jesus. Next, God's promises for Israel extend to Gentiles who believe in Jesus. What promises? Well, the spiritual promises of sonship particularly. Okay, there are particular promises that God gives to ethnic Israel including land, that are specifically to those who are of ethnic Israel. We can see that in the Scriptures. But ultimately, even those of faith in the Old Testament recognized that their ultimate goal was not a city built by man, but whose designer and builder is God. The not present Jerusalem, though the prophets prophesied that Jesus would stand on the Mount of Olives and he is coming back in the same way. He's, he's, this is the thing, we'll get to that in a minute, but he's, he's not coming to London. Well, no, he has come, but he's not. A man said to me, well, it doesn't matter if he goes back to Jerusalem or not. That's just symbolic. He could come to London. He could go to Washington, D.C. or New York or something. That's a wrong view. That's a, an errant, aberrant take on the Scriptures. We over-symbolize things too much sometimes but the issue is we recognize and sometimes have tragically blended we've excluded the tangible promises that God promises to keep and we've replaced them only with the spiritual when the reality is they both exist and there is no issue with that there is there shouldn't be any tension the tension that's there is one that we have made not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, Paul writes in Romans 9, 6, and 7, and verse 24 and 29. So here he introduces this idea of an ethnic Israel, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and a spiritual Israel, an Israel of God. Israel has a current predicament. Paul speaks in Romans 10 verse 2. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. 
Being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they seek to establish their own. We'll go on to say they do not submit to God's righteousness. They're disobedient and contrary. But wrapping up, this is the hope. God has not rejected his people. Now we say, well, that's obvious. He has not rejected his people because we are here and he's not rejected us. And we know he won't reject us. We know that. Now I'm talking about not just his people here who are in um, covenant right at present time with the Lord through Jesus Christ. I'm talking about his covenant people who were the descendants of Abraham, who were part of that original covenant promise who are spoken of throughout the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, as His people. Ethnic Israel. There's a promise in Romans 11 of a remnant who will come to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And there's a promise that of that remnant at that time, whatever horrors may be along the journey, and according to those prophets and prophecies, yet to be fulfilled, there will be many horrors. But the reality is that there will be a remnant who will come to see Jesus as Savior and Lord. And the promise is that all Israel will be saved. Some people say, well, of course all Israel will be saved because we are of the Israel of God and all of the Israel of God will be saved. But you can't suddenly take the definition of Israel and change it. Throughout, Paul has been saying, Israel has done this, Israel has done that, Israel is this, Israel is that. And he's almost exclusively identifying that with the ethnic people, the Jews. You cannot then take this moment where he says all Israel will be saved and apply it as if it's not the Jews. That's not how exegesis works. That's not how unpacking the scriptures works. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Speaking of the Jews, Paul uses that term, his people, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. He then goes on to talk about how we who are not of ethnic Israel are actually grafted in to this tree that is Israel. We're grafted into this spiritual body. 
I am speaking to you Gentiles, verse 13, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? He calls us to not be arrogant toward the branches, the branches he speaks of as the Jews who have been broken off, the branches that have not believed, the people who have not believed, to to not be arrogant towards them. If some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, which is Christ, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, God's covenant remains, and yes, Israel still does matter. There was no concept in the early church or um, uh, the various earliest centuries of church history of the church completely replacing Israel, even after AD 70. Jerome, in the fourth century, 345 to 420 was his lifespan, um, in his commentary on Isaiah would write after Israel had been um, renamed and after Israel had been taken over fully by Rome and there was massive diaspora said, Israel will return to its own land and the land of Judah will be restored. On his commentary on Isaiah 31.5, Cyril of Alexandria around the same time would say the Jews will return to their own land and Jerusalem will be rebuilt in his commentary on Isaiah 11.11. 11. Throughout church history, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Hippolytus, Tertullian, um, in kind of more recent times, William Perkins, Charles Simeon, Charles Hodge, Robert Murray McShane, Lord Shaftesbury, Charles Spurgeon, J.C. Ryle, all of these individuals believed in a return of the Jews to their land. Spurgeon would preach to the Metropolitan Tabernacle, there will be a native government again. There will be again the form of a body politic. A state shall be incorporated and a king shall reign. Israel has now become alienated from her own land, but it shall not be so forever. For her son shall again rejoice in her. Her land shall be called Beulah. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall her sons marry her. I will place you in your own land as God's promise to them. And he looks at how God doing that then uses that as a catalyst through which these individuals come to see Jesus as Messiah. The two are not the two cannot be separated. J.C. Ryle. I believe that the Jews shall ultimately be gathered again as a separate nation, restored to their own land and converted to the faith of Christ after going through great tribulation. I believe that the literal sense of the Old Testament prophecies has been far too much neglected by the churches and is far too much neglected at the present day. 
And that under the mistaken system of spiritualizing and accommodating Bible language, Christians have too often completely missed its meaning. I believe we have cherished an arbitrary, reckless habit of interpreting first Advent texts literally and second Advent texts spiritually. Suppose the Jew asks if you take all the prophecies of the Old Testament in their simple literal meaning. Suppose he asks if you believe in a literal personal advent of Messiah to reign over the earth in glory, a literal restoration of Judah and Israel, a literal rebuilding and restoration of Zion and Jerusalem. Suppose the unconverted Jew puts these questions to you. What answer are you prepared to make? Will you dare to tell him that Old Testament prophecies of this kind are not to be taken in their plain literal sense? Will you dare to tell him that the word Zion Jerusalem, Jacob, Judah, Ephraim, Israel do not mean what they seem to mean, but mean the church of Christ. Will you dare to tell him that the glorious kingdom and future blessedness of Zion, so often dwelt upon in prophecy, mean nothing more than the gradual Christianizing of the world by missionaries and gospel preaching? Will you dare to tell him that you think it carnal to expect a literal rebuilding of Jerusalem, or carnal to expect a literal coming of Messiah to reign? O reader, if you are a man of this mind, Ryle would write, take care what you are doing. I say again, take care. Why? Because God's promises are real and they are to be taken at face value. We must not look with arrogance on the branches. To say that Christ is Israel or that God's people are the true Israel, which is true, does not necessitate denial of the special nature of ethnic national Israel. Israel matters to God, and it should matter to us as we are part of a a world that is lost and that is dying. We should seek to see our Jewish friends, our Jewish communities presented with the hope that's in the Messiah Jesus just as much as anyone else. So it's my prayer that we would be all of the more assured of our own place in God's covenant as part of his people, that we would have a greater and a growing heart for those people who he speaks of throughout as his people, the Jews. Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would, uh, please, I just want to simply pray, would you save the Jews? Would you bring an awakening? May the scales fall off the eyes. May the blindness be removed. May those people who have been blessed with such an abundance of blessing in these ways, these advantages that your word outlines, may they grasp and take hold. And may they know your salvation. Give us greater insight, greater intuition and initiative and help us, Lord, as we seek to reach this lost and dying world with the hope of Christ. In his name we ask it. Amen. Amen.